0: Welcome to The Heal Podcast, where we believe God heals people in the way that brings Him the most glory and brings us closest to Him. Whether you've received healing, you're in the fight of your life, or you gave up on God a long time ago, you are welcome here. As you come to the table, listen with an open mind, knowing everyone's journey is unique, but pain is our common language. Hi friends, welcome to The Heal Podcast. My name is Tara Bradham-Denai. I am your host. Thank you for joining us for our 101st episode, meeting us back here when the century episodes of the podcast. So we're really excited about that. And we are carrying it on in a new, strong way. I mean, nothing really has changed other than the fact that I still want to have great guests on the show, like Dr. Brian Gregg. Dr. Brian Gregg is an associate professor of biblical studies at the University of Sioux Falls in South Dakota, where he has been for over two decades, and he wrote the book called What Does the Bible Say About Suffering? I love having people on who you can relate to on an emotional level. It's just people who have incredible stories, but I also think it's really important to have people on who have done more studying than you or I have probably in certain areas of theology because we are in the middle of a war, if you didn't know that. We are in a war where we know that we have the victory and we fight from victory, not for it. But there's still a lot of battles yet to be won. And the enemy of our souls has been given the reign of this world for now. He is the prince of this world. And so to fight against the schemes of the enemy and how he would like to use our suffering, we have to take up the armor of God. And the sword of the spirit is the word of God. So what I love today about Dr. Greg is that he brings a perspective that equips us with the word of God to be able to play offense and In this kingdom war where we don't always have to be on the defense when suffering strikes, but we can equip ourselves to know what the Bible says about suffering and to go on the offense, taking back lands, taking back territory, you know, all in the spiritual sense for the kingdom and for our king. So that is what I believe this episode is going to do for us today. And I really, really believe that Dr. Gregg's book will further equip you in that. He talks about 12 different perspectives on suffering. And I think this is so important because we try to wrestle with God on this podcast about what are the the possible ways that God heals us, what are the possible reasons or purposes or perspectives in our suffering. And Dr. Gregg gives us 12 of those. And I think this is where we often mess up, is we try to just pinpoint one and we don't understand the complexity of how the Bible presents suffering as a whole. So here to break it down for us today is Dr. Brian Gregg. Brian, I just told you as we chatted that I am excited because I feel like you wrote a book that encompasses our podcast quite literally. So I am thrilled to get into that. Thank you for being here.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure.
0: Well, to start with, I think we're going to do deep dive into the academic stuff in a second. So before we go down that rabbit trail, because it's really fun for me, will you tell people just a little bit, maybe something they wouldn't know about you? I mean, yes, I'll tell them that you're a professor and all of that, but any any fun hobbies, any family, anything just... Weird that's coming to your mind about yourself?
1: Well, I'm sure there are a lot of weird things I could tell you, but I'm not sure how many of them I well, went out there in public. <laughs> I have a lot of hobbies. I really enjoy nature. I play a lot of board games with my family. Mm. I've got a wife and two kids. What are your favorite board games? Favorite board games? I play a lot of card games with my son. He has just recently gotten me into Magic, which is hmm. Magic G- the Gathering. It's a card game that's been around for, I don't know, 20, 25 years. Hmm. Uh, and I've always avoided it because there's enough of a compulsive personality in me that I could see myself taking a deep dive. Yeah. But now there's an excuse. You know, my yeah. son, I need to connect with
0: Absolutely. him.
1: Absolutely. So there it is. Yeah.
0: Go deep. Do you play nerds?
1: I don't, no. My kids have on occasion.
0: Oh, that's been since, well, I went on the world race and that was a big thing there. And my husband and some of his family and friends love it. And that is... It's addicting, but it takes a while to get all those things going at one time. So,
1: Mm -hmm. sure.
0: okay, wife, kids, originally from the West.
1: Yes, relocated. We're in Sioux Falls. So we're Midwesterners now. We're in South Dakota. And that's been a nice transition for us. Our kids were raised here. And yeah, I've been at the University of Sioux Falls for, gosh, almost two decades now. I don't think we anticipated that when we first got here, but it's been a wonderful place to be with really great colleagues and students. So I've learned a lot here.
0: What is your favorite part about South Dakota? Most people, I'm guessing, have never been to South Dakota. So if you could give us your your elevator pitch, what would that be?
1: Like things to do, you mean?
0: Well, it could be.
1: Favorite thing about living here.
0: Just your favorite thing, whatever genre.
1: In terms of living here, I I think there is, Sioux Falls is, I don't know, maybe metro 250,000, something like that. So it's big enough to feel like a city to me. But at the same time, Sioux Falls is, it maintains something of that small town community feel. So you really do feel like you know people. I see students all the time that I've had in previous classes and just feel like this is a nice place to belong.
2: Awesome.
0: Awesome. Okay. We're going to jump into suffering if you're ready for that. Oh boy. You wrote a book on it.
1: I know. My students often ask me, why did you pick that? Was it depressing?
0: <laughs> and your answer, that's my question to you is, do you have suffering in your own life? I'm sure we all do. But what, what did prompt you to write an entire book on suffering? Uh, yeah, I think that's
1: that's twofold. Part of that emerges from my own experience. As you just said, we all have I think, meaningful seasons of suffering in our lives. Mm -hmm. And that's certainly been the case for me. But the other impetus I really do think came from being in the classroom. I found through lots of conversations with students that they had a really, really simplistic approach to suffering Mm -hmm. and that that was not just getting in the way, but really proving harmful a lot of the time. Yeah. And so I just started to explore some texts and think it through in a new way myself how one might present this sort of material to somebody. And the book the book emerged from that.
0: Yeah. Do your students have to read your book? Because that's a book I would actually appreciate being forced to read in college.
1: I used to teach a class on suffering in the Bible that helped sort of feed into this book. But once the book was published, it felt rather awkward to teach that class. Mm. <laughs> sort of like hmm. I've stolen my own thunder, if you know what I mean. Huh. Let's, let's take this journey, but you could just read it. Yeah. So I, I actually haven't taught that as a class since. Huh. I have woven it into sort of one of the pieces of our senior seminar okay. where we're asking some really hard questions and this becomes one of them. So okay. it's gotten folded in there.
0: So you're still able to help students work through this and not have such a simplistic view though?
1: Sure. I, I'm a I'm a Bible teacher, essentially. My PhD is in New Testament. And so all of the classes I teach, mine is say, Greek, I guess, explicitly,
2: hmm.
1: have to do with looking closely at biblical text. And you just can't read the Bible without seeing that this is a major theme. Yeah. The biblical writers are certainly wrestling with this. And as we'll see, they have a lot of things to say. Yeah. So in the course of, of any of my classes, this is something that emerges. Yeah. And I, I like to emphasize in my introduction to the Bible in particular, which everybody here at the University of Sioux Falls takes, that this might look a little different than you thought. Mm -hmm. So that, that becomes another really good opportunity to talk about this.
0: Yeah. So in your book, you list 12 different possible reasons or purposes for suffering. And I'm curious how you came to 12, because it is a kind of biblical number. Is that why? Or were you just looking at all these texts and you just happened to find 12 different ones?
1: Well, the Lord gave me a vision. And, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> no, it, there's, there's nothing mysterious or magical about the number 12 in this case. I really wrestled with what I was finding, and these are the 12 that emerged. I actually had 11 at one point because I didn't know exactly how to talk about the, that 12th one that made it into the book. And I remember a conversation with a friend. He said, no, this is this is important. Hmm. It may be harder to talk about but it needs to go in there. So, I ended up with 12.
0: Was that the fall, falling God into suffering? Was that the one?
1: That we partake in the atoning work of of God, mm-hmm. not directly, like not that Jesus's atoning work isn't sufficient. Right. But that there's something about our suffering that he takes up and uses mm-hmm. in this this sort of patient time of waiting before he returns.
0: Yeah. There's so many reasons and they're so good. I think what hits me when I'm reading this is I think this is how we hurt each other so badly is that most of us will use one of these 12. And I mean, I have no idea what the statistics are, but it's something like, yeah, maybe you're right. One of 12 times and you can feel good about that one. And I don't want to say, but quite possibly we are pushing people away from God the other 11 times because that's not helping them grapple with their suffering. And so you talk about how it's, it can be dangerous when we just look at the one way or like, there's no one way forward. Why is it important to look at the whole of scripture on this? Cause like you said, it's a huge theme throughout old and new Testament, Yeah, all kinds of stuff. Why why do we need to look at all of it instead of just picking our, our favorite little motivational scripture on suffering?
1: Well, really, this is the heart of the book, right? The the premise is that we're all inclined to sort of naturally think that there's one particular, maybe two or three particular ways to approach this problem. And we we live out of that. We talk to other people in those terms, we have those expectations for ourselves. It's kind of the go-to answers for us. Mm-hmm. And the book is really encouraging us to see that this the scriptural witness is much broader than that. And so if we're going to really approach the topic of suffering in the scripture, we need to take seriously the full witness of the scripture. Mm -hmm. We need to be open to the fact that it has some things to say that we haven't thought of before, that maybe we need to wrestle with anew. And that's uncomfortable for us. We'd like to feel like we've got the answers, that our answers are sufficient. So an analogy I use early in the book is that. We're, we're kind of trained to hear and to, to think in terms of a melody, you know, if I'm a soprano or a bass or something like that. And, and I've sing my line and I'm tuned to sort of hear my line. But in fact, we need to be much more aware of the voices around us, that there's a full choir. Mm-hmm. And as the harmony emerges, we're going to get a much better sense of, of what's intended. And the scriptural witness is much like that harmony. Mm -hmm. We've got, as I isolate here, at least 12 different approaches to this question uh, of suffering. And and those inform one another. They're not necessarily mutually exclusive. This Mm -hmm. isn't a, well, is it one, two, three, four, five, six? It's not that kind of thing. But they do speak to one another and they offer us alternatives Mm -hmm. and they sometimes apply in meaningful ways and sometimes don't. And if we're not willing to sort of wade into the, the deep end there Mm -hmm. and sort through some of that we're we're liable to to miss the point sometimes or miss miss what god is at work doing yeah and as you said there can be really some pretty negative effects for how we relate to others potentially as well yeah we seek to interpret something for them in a way that is neither helpful nor accurate we can do some damage in the process
0: Did you find anything surprised you as you were writing this book or what were your ones that you kind of leaned towards? I'm kind of looking at which ones I lean towards because just, I mean, some of them, you talk about like punishment. It can be a punishment for sin, suffering that is in the Bible, which, you know, you get the hell fire and brimstone preaching from that. But I mean, that is in the, the Bible or that some of it's just a result of people sinning. And that's why we have suffering or You know, you have God redeeming it in the future, suffering is training, suffering is testing, suffering in the power of weakness, suffering in God's comfort. I mean, there's and there's so many more. I think I tend to look at it as maybe a testing or growing because I'm lead towards that challenge in life of like, okay, this is going to be used for good. But I think some other people lean towards other ones, maybe Mm -hmm. their church background. What were those that you leaned towards and did any surprise you that you found?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I think oddly enough, you may lean towards something that's not even remotely attractive to you. Hmm. So, I, I think for myself, part of my own journey was understanding and embracing that there was complexity here
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that my intuition, which usually was telling me I did something wrong and that's why this is befalling me, was n- not necessarily an adequate guide. I needed to listen to some voices beyond that intuition. Now, I'm not sure where I developed that sense that, you know, what God is most interested in is to be talked about in punitive terms. I, I don't believe that is hmm. the, the center of who God is at all. Interesting. But I do find myself in crisis or in difficulty or in suffering gravitating to that sort of thing. Hmm. So this has been very instructive work for me personally just to move past that and think of other ways to, to approach my own pain. Mm -hmm. That's really important. I think.
0: Yeah. Which one do you feel like you didn't think of, or was like the least that you had thought about which reason? And I know, I don't know if you have the list of all 12.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know if there's a least, I I think as my, as I've developed as a disciple kind of brought these things to God and, and, and experienced them with him some of these have really taken hold in my heart and in my spirit in a different way. I think certainly the the chapter on eschatology, the sense that God has a hope and a future for us, that mm-hmm. resurrection speaks to a story where God wins and he's folded me into that. That that's really been a meaningful touchstone for me now.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I think I find myself going back to that a lot. Yeah. Now it's important not to short circuit people's processes with something like that. Mm-hmm. I've found Maybe interestingly, that it is, is rarely very comforting when people are first experiencing real grief to, to go towards that kind of perspective. Right. Yeah. Well, it's okay. There's a resurrection. I think of Jesus' conversation with Mary and Martha. You mm-hmm. know, he's talking to two sisters after the death of Lazarus, and the sister says, Well, you know, I understand that they will be raised in the last day. And she's essentially asking, But what about now? Mm-hmm. I'm missing him now. I don't have him anymore. Yeah. And there's real sorrow to that. And we don't want to short circuit that by saying, but, but yeah, the, there's another, it's another piece of the puzzle. The story's got a good end. Just hang on.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, all, I mean, all of them, as attractive as any one of them may be, mm-hmm. they've all got their time and they've got their place.
0: Yes. So at the same time, that is a profound truth that we need to proclaim.
1: Yes. Oh, absolutely. And there's real hope there. I, yeah. I, again, it's been hope that's, incredibly meaningful to me but
0: i so agree with you that it's not what you want to hear all the time
1: yeah we i talk to my students about the grieving process and how even certain ones of these approaches might be more meaningful at Mm -hmm. one stage of that process versus another you know the whole idea of being trained or developed soul making if you will well that's not very attractive to me in the moment Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. That God is using this suffering to refine me, to grow me, Mm -hmm. to challenge me. Can't you find another way? You know, I mean, that's that's my response in the moment because this is horribly painful. Yeah. And there's no way around that. Yeah.
0: No discipline is pleasant at the time, right? But for those who are refined by it, right? Yes.
1: Right. And I tell you, my experience in the gym certainly bears witness to that.
0: Yep. (laughs) Absolutely. Because you. I was talking about this with another gal on who's going to be the week before you, but a pastor I listened to, I mean, John Mark Comer says that, or maybe it was Tyler Staten, whatever. I go to Bridgetown and they they feed off of each other because we have the new pastor now, but he says our strongest desires is not always our deepest desires.
2: Mm.
0: Right. And that's, that's the discipline there. I think you're talking about on that. I, I want to talk to you about control control. We can be like, I, Discipline is a form of control almost. And when it's a self-discipline and all of that. And I think maybe that's also why I lean towards that kind of view of suffering because it's something that I can control. And okay, if this is going to grow me, I'm going to, I'm going to learn and I'm going to do it and all of that because I have huge control issues, the Lord has revealed to me. (laughs) So you wrote now that you said, you know, at the time I found these mysteries, mysteries of God that you couldn't understand and a lot of this very unsettling. Honestly, I think I distrusted the truthfulness of something that eluded my explanation and categorization. I see now that this distrust was actually rooted in a loss of control. Slowly but surely, I have come to see that if God is really and truly beyond me, then it is only reasonable that there would be mysteries too deep and wide for me. Ultimately, God does not call me to trust in my understanding of him. He calls me to trust him. Talk about that from a PhD professor standpoint, (laughs) not understanding of him, but him.
1: I don't think I can say it much better than that, but (laughs) our desire, I think our strong desire is to be our own master. And that means that I've got the variables under my control. I know what buttons to push to make the outcome I want to have happen, happen. Mm -hmm. And life with God simply renders that untenable. We can, I mean, we're fooling ourselves to think that there's any real truth in that anyway. But I think God is pretty adamant about the fact that he will not bend to our will in that way. Mm-hmm. And we are going to have to trust him. We're going to have to proceed as though he is good, as though he is powerful, and as though he is faithful to his promises. And as much as I want to claim those things, I also have to recognize those. that's out of my hands then. Mm-hmm. That's a. That's a difficult thing, I think, for most of us.
0: Yeah. So as the little twerp college student who's going to raise her hand right now and ask you, (laughs) well, Professor Greg, I
1: don't know if that's what
0: they call you, but... Yes, Tara. (laughs) So why should I trust a God that I can't understand? Mm. What makes him trustworthy?
1: Well, he isn't inexplicable. When I talk about the mystery of God, it's not in the sense that you can't know anything. It's more in the sense that you can't know as much as you want to know, mm. that you can be making choices for him because they're that that are rooted in real knowledge and real experience. I have encountered God in my life. I have come to know him as good. His most clear expression of who he is, is demonstrably good in Jesus. Mm-hmm. God made flesh who ministered among us and taught us and showed us what it means to be truly human, and then chose to die for us. Mm-hmm. I have no doubt in the largest sense that God is good. My doubts emerge from what does good look like for me right here, God? Why can't I understand this?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so those are two different things, right? If if it was simply, as I think some of my students say, you know, a, a blind faith, mm-hmm. that's... That's not rooted in something real, and that's not where Jesus leaves us. That's not where God leaves us. I think we have very good reason to trust Him and to believe that He is good. Yeah, but there's still mystery in that, isn't there? Yeah, there's still lots of circumstances where we don't understand why or what are you doing here or where is this headed, mm-hmm. and that that's still difficult for us.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's like a, imagine you at four years old. There are things that your parents could not explain to you quite literally mm-hmm. about how the world works did that mean you had to doubt that they had that they were good that they were looking out for you no i don't think those things were mutually exclusive yeah
0: i think that's really good to acknowledge that yes there's a mystery of god but there's an awful lot we can know and experience and there is mm-hmm a lot of validity to why we trust and put our trust in him. Yeah. And so I'm working a little bit backwards here because I do want to go through some of the 12 and sure. get into the nitty gritty because I think some of it's interesting. But even in the conclusion of your book, you talk about the necessity of discernment. Hmm. So when we have these 12 different reasons or however many there actually are, who knows, maybe there are more than that in the Bible, but the, at least 12 that you present,
2: Sure.
0: how do we know... Okay, now I have 12 different possible purposes or reasons for suffering that are biblical.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Which one's going on in my life? Which one's going on in the life of someone I'm trying to help and minister to? How do we practically grow in discernment and knowing and understanding sure. those if there is this much complexity?
1: Yeah. I found that one of the things we really desire from God is simplicity. And he doesn't always offer that, right? <laughs> no. The Bible itself is, is, you know, really engaging the Bible is a complex endeavor as much as we'd like to think, oh, it's the word of God and it should just be simple and transparent to us. It's a, That's a hard question. I mean, I, I, I think I'd start by saying that I, I wouldn't necessarily want to call these reasons even. I'm not sure that God offers us 12 reasons for suffering so much as he offers us 12 perspectives or 12 okay. approaches. Yeah. 12 ways to think about what might be going on here. And certainly, many of those aren't going to satisfy us in a, well, there's the answer kind of way. Mm -hmm. But discernment is very much appropriate and necessary, right? If, in fact, there are lots of different ways to interpret what God is doing in the midst of our suffering, or why our suffering has happened, or how we ought to respond to our suffering, any of those things, then. We need to be actively engaged in, in asking ourselves at some point, how do I weigh these things?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What do I think is going on here? How, how might I profit from this? How might I have a new perspective that might help me in my, my walk here? What might God want me to take seriously that I have not been taken seriously before? Any, any of those kinds of things, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I think that discernment piece isn't easy obviously, or we'd be really good at it, right? Mm -hmm. I think it comes about when we bring our trials and tribulations to God, when we are open to listening to what he has to say. I think it comes through reflection on the scripture. I think it comes through community where we have people who can speak into our lives. I think that's a really important piece, actually, that all too often, we kind of shunt to the side.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I think good friends, good Christian friends, can often liberate us from some of our unfounded guilt or fear. It's often easier for somebody outside you to to speak truth to you in a way that says, "Hey, it, no, you, you don't need to worry about that."
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That is, certainly has been my experience.
0: Yeah, mine too. I'm
1: very, very grateful for my wife in this in this circumstance. I had a period of pretty intense depression early in my dating relationship with my wife, who's now been my wife for twenty-three years. She was one of those unique people who was very, very grounded and very helpful in the midst of that depression, and was sort of always available to say, uh, "No, I don't think I don't think that's it. I don't think I don't think you're, there's some sin lurking behind the curtain here. Hmm. Let's keep let's keep looking. Let's keep asking." I remember my fear actually compelled me to go to Julie, my wife, and say, I'm afraid that maybe you're the reason I'm depressed.
0: While you're dating or married?
1: This, well, we were dating at this point. And yes. Oh, oh that's great. It's still, it still survived. And she looked at me and she said, no, that's not it.
2: <laughs> oh, I and love I, her. I
1: honestly, I think 99% of the population is going to say, look, loser, I've been putting up with you all this time. And you're pointing the finger at me, maybe? And she just was really gracious hmm. and freed me from that, right? Yeah. Like her sense of,
2: hmm,
1: no, no, that's <laughs> not it. it was exactly what I needed to hear. Yeah, And I could, I could move on to continue wrestling with this in a new way.
0: Mm-hmm. Did you come to, I don't know if I would say a conclusion, but I mean, that was, if you've been married over 20 years, over 20 years ago, what did God teach you through that journey? through depression and and what it meant. I mean, do you feel like you're on the other side now? What does that look like?
1: Oh, yeah. I was a fairly young, but very passionate Christian and was very determined to have God help me through this in ways that made sense to me. Mm-hmm. And at some point that became became impossible. I was so phenomenally depressed that some people took me under their wing and said, maybe we should talk to a doctor. So I've got a, a on my mom's side of the family, there's sort of a long history of, of some chemical depression. So mm-hmm. I got on a medication and those were the two, only, those last two bouts of depression I've ever had.
2: Hmm.
1: So in my case, I'm very grateful. I I'm sometimes wonder what it'd be like to live my life a hundred years ago. Yeah. Be an entirely different person. Yeah either be working in the fields and just sweating out my grief or I don't know, maybe something far worse. Yeah. I'm not sure.
0: And so you're speaking from someone who got the, I guess I would say in the the physical healing realm, like you got the cure, right? And you experienced that. And yet I imagine there's still so much that God taught you and brought you through in that time, right?
1: Oh, it was very formative time for me in some ways that were very good and in some that were, I think, difficult and hard, Uh, even in my relationship with God, I had a lot of fear for quite a few years because I was so eager to have God step in and just make it right. I think I spent a lot of time thinking about, God, what do you want me to do here? How do I push the right buttons and have you act on my behalf? And though you're right, I did very much come out of that with healing, essentially. It wasn't in the in the, the way I thought that would happen. And so there's cer- certainly some lingering fear there for me. And I think intimacy with God sort of became a small incremental step-by-step process mm-hmm. in the years that followed, sort of opening myself up again and feeling like, you're good and I can trust you. Mm-hmm. and I don't have to live in this fear.
2: What would
0: you say to someone who's in that spot where you were, where they're like, well, I just don't, I don't know if I want to take, I feel betrayed by God. I don't want to take those steps to trust him again. What's like a good starter baby step to say, okay, I'm going to just take this little step out and and trust you here. Or do you remember what that looked like for you?
1: Yeah. I suppose it depends on whether you're in the thick of it or not. I think I was very much trying to survive when I was in the thick of that. Mm -hmm. And I think at least for depression, what was so terribly debilitating about that was that you have this sense that this is all that there is. Mm -hmm. I felt like it was inevitable that tomorrow will be like today. And there's a fundamental lack of hope in that. Right. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So once things started to turn around, making those choices became a lot easier, but it's very difficult in that that place Mm -hmm. to, to move in that direction. Mm-hmm. I do think probably you need people to surround you and love you and lift you up and yeah. help you find a way forward.
2: Yeah.
0: And I just want to be aware of having this conversation. We're having this long conversation about the theology of suffering, which I think you mentioned something similar at the beginning is wonderful. And I think a lot of us have a huge gap in that, particularly in the West. We don't know what our Bible says, and we don't understand that there's all these different views. However, most of the time, that's not actually what we need in the thick of it. We need the emotional love or the tangible outreaching of someone. I think in the body.
1: Yeah, it's it's what you need and when you need it. I do think there there comes a time when it's imperative to actually think these things through. Mm-hmm. But it's rarely in the moment. Yeah, it's like I was saying earlier. Many of these approaches are, are rarely very satisfying yeah. if they're sort of explained or delivered from on high when you're right in the, the crucible of suffering. Mm-hmm. But as as you kind of come out on the other side and are preparing for, in some ways, for the next season of suffering, because this is the nature of life in this world, Yeah, I, I do think the ability to think things through, to, to have uh, categories and a renewed perspective mm-hmm. Those things are vital. Actually, they, they really help us navigate what comes next. Yeah. And so it's the when. The when is critical, right? Yeah. I often have people say, Well, should I give you, I've got this friend who, you know, this horrible thing just happened to them. Should I give him your book? And I want to say, In a year, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it's, it's almost that sort of thing, right? It's yeah. important work for them to do. And it's going to be, I think, potentially even really healing yeah. in a process, the larger process. But I'm with you. Right in the moment, we need we need love, we need presence, we need patience, we need compassion, we need those things lived out in our lives. Mm -hmm. And the higher level thinking and perspective is is probably secondary at that point.
0: Yeah. So I'm gonna flip that question and say, So Brian, I have someone who just had something really awesome happen in their life, like they graduated or they got married. Should I give them your book to prepare for suffering?
1: Yes. Um, they might perceive that as somewhat something of a downer, I would yeah, imagine. That, yeah, yeah. Congratulations on your wedding. Now let's talk about suffering.
0: I mean, but I don't think it's human nature to prepare for suffering when we're not in it. Right. right. Right?
1: Yeah. It's it's a matter of training. If we're not prepared to jump some of these hurdles when we come to them, then we're that much more likely to suffer more greatly in the midst of it. hmm Because we don't understand how to think about God and what he's up to and what something might mean.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's jump into some of that. If people are listening, they're like, okay, stop talking about it. Just tell me what some of these things are so that I can prepare. Well, one, just go get Brian's book. I'll link that. So we're not going to... just a giant
1: teaser, right? Yes,
0: I mean, that's that's my point, right? No, I do think people should get the book because we're not going to get to all the depth that you have there. But I like how you shared this one part because I think this is something people really struggle with. I think I've had some podcast guests say this as an explanation for their suffering. And you said you had a student who came to you and he said he was molested as a child and said that that happened so that he could minister to others in similar situations. So I think people... And pain, I've heard people say, well, this happened so that I could minister to people who also have pain. I could say that, right? Look what God has done and birthed a ministry out of my horrendous pain, where I just begged him, okay, if you can use this for one person's life. But that's a great effect. But why Why would you say that that did not happen so that there could be a ministry?
1: Right. I really think there's an important distinction to make here. One that, that speaks to the the true character of God. I think in many of these capacities, in many of these approaches, God takes up suffering. He is redemptive in the midst of it. He finds ways to bring good out of it. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't necessitate sort of the conviction that God made it happen. I'm startled how quickly people go there. There's theologically, you would call this divine determinism, Mm -hmm. which is a very particular view of God's sovereignty, which says, Everything that happens, absolutely everything, is the express will of God. Hmm. I I absolutely affirm that God has promises and purposes that he can and does work in the world. That there are times and places we can look to, certainly in the Bible and elsewhere, where we can say that that's God following through on, on what he wants to do. And sometimes it's big things and sometimes it's small things. But I don't think that we're to draw the conclusion that every single thing that happens is the will of God, the Father.
2: Mm-hmm. I think when
1: push comes to shove, we often avoid this, even if that was our theology, right? Yeah. We, we we recognize that it's somehow gross and inappropriate to say, well, your daughter was raped because God needed her raped.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, that, that's, what? Yeah. Know, I, that's, that's not who he is. That's not how he he acts. It's not his agenda in the world, right? He he brings life and and health and wholeness.
0: And yet, it doesn't seem so bad when we're like, oh, God, God willed me to have cancer.
1: It well, it sounds pretty bad to me still, but <laughs>
0: yeah, I don't know. It's not a masochistic way, but I think we can say, oh, well, you know, maybe it's we believe there's purpose there if if he willed it.
1: Uh, and and there, and, and I I am a hundred percent on board that. God can use that purposefully, Yes, that he can take that up and fold it into his will and bring some good things out of it. And one of those good things is often that you are better equipped to navigate suffering with someone else. Mm -hmm. You have been initiated into a fraternity you hoped you never belonged to, but nevertheless now understand. Yeah, And out of that space, you can be a comfort and a source of wisdom. In ways that you quite frankly couldn't before. Mm-hmm. I think of you know some people have real difficulty raising a child, and and then there are other people who just sail right through raising their kids, and mm. there's just no issues at all. How easy it is for that latter set of parents to think of the former set and wonder what's wrong with them. Mm. You know what I mean? And none of us are in that position when we have actually suffered. Yeah. We all recognize the truth of how indiscriminate this could be, mm-hmm. how debilitating it can be, how disorienting it can be, and how worthy, absolutely worthy of compassion and love somebody in the midst of suffering is. Yeah. And so I'm I'm grateful for my suffering, that it's kind of brought me to that place. But am I always thankful that that was the way I got there? No. Uh, There's this a great book by... Nicholas Wolterstorff, who's mostly known as a philosopher, but wrote a book called Lament for a Son. He lost a son in a in a climbing accident. And it's just an incredibly poignant sort of journal of his journey. I would highly recommend it to, okay. to your listeners. a journey of grief in this case. And he's wrestling with all this sort of stuff. And Wolterstorff says, you know, that it, he reflects at the end of the book, yes, I've become a different person. God has transformed me here. I'm I am more Christ-like, he says essentially, and yet would I trade it all to have my son back in a heartbeat?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I get that. That makes sense. Yeah. I really don't think ultimately God needs us to suffer in order to accomplish his purposes. Mm-hmm. I think a much better way to think about this is that God takes up those sufferings and it makes mm-hmm. good use of them.
2: Yeah.
0: You said that Theologically, the gap between intends and permits is a virtual chasm.
1: Yeah. It, well, it is to me. Yeah. There are people who are happy to ascribe all kinds of things to God that I find quite objectionable. Right. God did that to you, or God did that to you. I'm, that makes me deeply uncomfortable often.
0: Yeah. Well, so one thing I wanted to talk to you about, because you mentioned this in your book, one of the Okay, what did you say? There there are 12 perspectives, not reasons. One of the perspectives is that some suffering exists as a result of free will. And we talk about this. And I think in your conclusion, you say, as part of our control, you know, we'd love to say, well, cancer is part of the refining one. And this, you know, free will, a murder is definitely part of the free will. And it's just not that simple. Yeah. But I think I. I'm fascinated with World War II. That's my, I don't want to say guilty pleasure, reading World War II books. I mean, I just finished one about the horses that they were getting back this American mission to get a bunch of horses back because the Nazis were breeding them. Mm -hmm. Ironically, kind of like how they viewed humans and, and the purity of races. So it's just interesting to me. But you had a very similar perspective to what I have in that. I feel like I am so fascinated by it because I I see the worst humanity can produce. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you see the absolute most resilience that humanity has ever produced. Mm -hmm. And I think we also like it because the enemies and heroes seem to be clear. And yet you talk about, well, I mean, who am I to say basically that if I was raised in Nazi Germany, under the propaganda, under everything else, that I would not have been there or had I been a bystander. And it really was easy to ignore some people going missing that I wouldn't have done exactly what they did. And I think that's really important when we talk about suffering, because I think the same thing I heard. It's always stuck with me. A pastor years ago in a sermon said that he went to a conference where it was just pastors. It was a training. And the speaker said... Raise your hand if you believe that you could commit adultery on your wife. And two men raised their hands. And he said, You're the only ones I'm not concerned about. Mm. And his point was, If you don't believe that you could, that's where you're in the most danger. So, why is it so important to recognize our own capacity for sin when we're talking about suffering? Because I'm with you. I really, I'm like, Oh man. Who knows if I had been in a certain set of circumstances. I, wa- I hope I would have been the person hiding Jews in my house, yeah. but I just don't, I don't know that I can say that, honestly, if I don't know what circumstances I would have been presented with.
1: Yeah. There are so many sort of pithy one-liners, I'd say, that we use to sum up what's going on with suffering.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And they're often ways of making myself feel better, right? Hmm so that God is using this for a purpose we just talked about, or, well, it's just free will, as though that explains everything. Even in situations where the suffering is quite transparently because of someone's choice to do something sinful, Mm -hmm. there's still lots of mystery there, right? Why do why do people make those choices? It's not entirely a matter of the will. It's the matter of a will shaped by a certain context and a certain environment and certain genetics. Mm -hmm. And if we're honest with ourselves, those things are enormous factors. So we're left, you and I, to wonder, because we'll never know, who would I be if I were less fortunate, right? Mm -hmm. If I were in circumstances that were pushing hard for me to become a very different kind of person. If I was not exposed to, to certain values and priorities as a child, you name it. Mm-hmm. And as much as we'd like to think the best of ourselves, that I'm, I'm wholly responsible for all of the good that I've become. Mm-hmm. Well, you're not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's of course more complicated than that. And it's by the grace of God that any of this good emerges anyway.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So yeah, I, I'm I'm with you. There's a lot to wonder about there, and I hope that helps us understand evil in a different way, mm-hmm. people's choices to participate in evil in a different way. Yeah, I've been reflecting recently on sort of the atrocities, some of the atrocities being committed in Ukraine. Yeah, by Russian soldiers, and you know what what has led to those kinds of decisions, and as much as I want to demonize these particular Russian soldiers, I've got to acknowledge as a student of history that most wars in most times and most places have degraded people in this way. Mm -hmm. They have encouraged the basest, most sinful kind of behavior. And I don't know if that's because we're already neck deep in violence at that point and sort of civility and love of neighbor is is already put on the shelf, mm-hmm. but it's it's quite startling to see what we can become as human beings. Yeah. I think the truth of the matter probably is that those Russian soldiers are not inherently evil in ways that I could never relate to. And that's kind of a shocking thing for me to, yeah. to realize.
0: I mean, I do think there's a whole other level of, I mean, talking about this and things that go on in the world and Nazi Germany of the demonic and yeah, that being... Yeah.
2: Well, that's a that's factor one of the as well. Too.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't go there with different perspectives on suffering without talking about Job and Satan, right? So, I mean, that's so so many factors. Like this is the thing. Let's look at one piece of suffering in the world's history, and I mean, you and I can barely explain it, right?
1: Yeah, and we see complexity wherever we turn. We see complexity, right? And so, as much as we desire to wrap our minds around it and say, oh, well, this is the thing. Mm -hmm. I think we got to be a little little careful.
0: Yeah. You talk about one of the perspectives is talking, I think it was Deuteronomy, about divine reward and punishment when you're talking about biblical view of suffering. And I think that's one that has been really abused, Hmm. but you do see it in the Bible. Is that an old testament thing is that I mean, because people could be like, Oh yeah, God's punishing certain nations, you know, right now. What what is your take on sure. how does that apply to to us now?
1: Well, it's really a foundational idea for the Hebrews. Mm-hmm. This sense that there is there's justice and that God is committed to justice is important, it remains important for us, even on this side of encountering Jesus. And that justice was often enacted in very literal ways, right? Mm -hmm. The people did poorly and they were disciplined accordingly. You raise a very interesting question though. And well let me first say you do find this in the New Testament still. It's not as though it's completely absent. Mm -hmm. Most of what we think about is judgment is is deferred to final judgment kind of things. Okay. But we do have God act in rather decisive ways in the here and now. You think of the book of Acts, I think I Right in that chapter about Ananias and Sapphira. Yeah. Who lie to God and boom. That's it. Right? We're not we're not gonna go down that path, says God, and let this be sort of a testimony to the rest of you. Wow,
0: that's that's sobering. They die for people who don't know that story. Oh
1: yes. They are my boom was (laughs) they're struck dead. Yes. One at a time, unfortunately. Yeah, that's that's really sobering, sobering stuff. Yeah. But the larger question you asked is, well. How quickly ought we be pointing the finger then? And I think with extreme reticence is my my answer to this. Mm -hmm. God certainly has the capacity to speak through prophetic figures and explain, you know, why and how he's doing something. But I don't think that's the norm. And I think especially when we're thinking of the New Testament, he's made it pretty clear that judgment belongs to him and it is at least principally going to be a matter of the final judgment. So I I think what we get a lot of that I'd like to see a lot less of is, wow, this horrible thing happened and I know who to blame. Hmm. It's it's the sin of this country or this people group or that minority or, boy, we have a lot of demonizing Mm -hmm. of various peoples. And I... I'm afraid that in the process, we've very much lost sight of how Jesus actually interacts with people, Mm -hmm. that he is consistently moving to find lost sheep, to extend hands of opportunity and second chances and redemption. And I think when we point the finger in this sort of way, we're completely losing that. We're missing the opportunity that might be in front of us to, to fold people in and to minister in Jesus's name. Yeah. So I think it's, by and large, a pretty bad idea.
0: Yeah. Just as a learner right now, learning from you, because I tend to very much say, though, like on an individual basis. So let's talk about Ananias and Sapphira for a second. And we're like, well, I don't believe that your illness is a result of your sin. And, I mean, there's complexity there with, I think sometimes you can get physical Issues from sin patterns because your body takes that on in itself of just weariness or you know reacting to certain emotional habits, repressing we
1: have. traumatic things. Yeah, all kinds yeah. of ways manifest in the body. Yeah. Sure.
0: So, but do you think that let's say a physical issue is ever a direct punishment from God? Is that a possibility?
1: Why would that be useful? I and mean, maybe that's a that's reorienting the question in the wrong way. But yeah but that's kind of what comes to mind for me is what what would god be accomplishing here mm-hmm. is he trying to get your attention cuz i can think of a lot of better other other better ways to do that
2: mm-hmm.
1: is this a matter of conviction again i think god has a variety of ways of getting at that i think sometimes when we we do pack things down emotionally that then mm-hmm. manifest in our bodies those are those are signs right right that those are those are ways that our body is even getting it, our attention and saying, "Hey, there's something I need you to pay attention to here, that's what pain receptors are all about mm-hmm. on a fundamental level, yeah you know the the ability to not feel pain is actually a devastatingly bad condition <laughs> because
0: have you read the gift of pain?
1: yeah, I have yeah, I heard of it? it it's uh yeah, it's you know you're you're gonna be in real trouble if you can't feel pain, yeah. So it's it's there, it's serving some good in that sense as a warning system, etc. But I, I I struggle to think that God's best way forward with us is to afflict us in that sort of way. Mm-hmm. I'm much more inclined to think that like like a heroin addict, right, is is gonna come out of using heroin and still suffer some consequences. That's just inevitable, mm-hmm. or virtually inevitable. I mean, God can. God can do anything, but it's, it's right. probably going to be part of your story that the entire process of getting clean takes a toll, that there's suffering involved. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, could you call that part of the sin? Sure. But it's not like, that's not God saying, I need this to be really painful for you now.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I think it's a byproduct of bad choices we make. Yeah. Not an affliction from God in that sense. Yeah. Is that a useful distinction?
0: Yes. I just wanted to ask that because I could just, I try to think like someone listening. And I think that's a question that people might be embarrassed to ask. Like, I don't even want to suggest that. But since we have someone on here who's looked biblically at these different propensities. Okay. But sure,
1: well, it was it? a very common way think in the first century, for instance, and Jesus carves out a whole new mm-hmm. way of approaching that. I'm sure is, I mean, you know that passage in John yep. probably better than I do. Given the nature of the podcast, yeah, where he he's redefining that, he's saying uh, you're making some assumptions that just aren't true, yeah. And I find that very liberating personally.
0: About the blind man, right? Yes, yes. Of uh,
1: that it, is it. Yeah. Is is it his sin? Is it his parents' sin? Yeah. Neither says Jesus. You're you're barking up the wrong mm-hmm. tree here. And again, what good is that going to do?
2: Yeah.
1: It, have you have you really helped this man by? Yeah identifying whose sin is involved. (laughs) Mm -hmm. What God is interested in here is revealing himself and healing this man. Yeah. So remembering who God is in the midst of it all, I think is quite useful.
0: Yeah. Okay. I can't believe it, but we're already coming up a little bit close to our time. So I have a ton more things I could ask you about, but I want to know what is on your heart that's been brought up that I haven't asked. What would you want to cover in this conversation that we haven't really gotten to, or maybe something you'd want to talk about further?
1: Well, I'd love it if people walked away from our conversation, reflecting maybe a little bit on the ways that they have attempted to control the narrative around suffering. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Again, I think there are some go-to expressions often we have when we're experiencing suffering or trying to understand suffering or helping someone else understand suffering. And while they may have nuggets of truth, they're often dismissive or half-baked or missing something very big in terms of the nature and character of God. I'd really love it if people would would take some time and think about this in a, in a larger sense,
2: mm-hmm.
1: just, just to get a handle on, well, this is more complex than I maybe acknowledge.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think that's important to me. The the other thing that drives me just nuts, <laughs> if I can share this.
0: Yeah, I hope I didn't say it.
1: No, 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 no. That has to do with what we were talking about—the sovereignty of God. Mm-hmm. I, I think I, I am personally just stunned by the number of people I have in classes who are not very well versed in the Scripture or maybe don't know much about God at all. Who one of the absolute surest things they'll deliver to you is that everything happens for a reason
2: hmm.
1: that that's, that's what makes it all all right is that God's got a plan and that happened for a reason. And I at least am one that I, I'm not even remotely comforted by <laughs> such a thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I find it deeply distressing.
2: Yeah. And
1: I think for some good reasons. And so That's another thing I'd love for people to sort of think more deeply about.
0: So maybe everything doesn't happen for a reason. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yes, that that divine determinism is a way of mapping out God's agenda. I don't think is all that adequate, nor is it very biblically sound. Could you
0: say that God in his grace and redemption turns things around to where they can all happen for a reason? That maybe they don't have to, but that he can redeem it in such a way that they are for a reason.
1: That's very well put. I mean, I think that's a critical distinction yeah. that God is, is very, very much busy redeeming us in the midst of hard and difficult circumstances of making even good use of that suffering. But let's let's not make God into the devil. Hmm. Let's remember that he is working for us, that he loves us deeply that our end is secure in him, that the things that matter most to us concern him very deeply. Mm-hmm. And let's not weave him into the, to some of the evils that we experience.
0: Yeah. So good. I'm like, oh, I need to just pray and ask God to search my heart about this with all my control. And it's a fine line between having faith and stepping out in certain things and just taking control. But it would not be controlling to say, hey, go get Brian's book and grapple with this, right? Would that be us trying to control it, trying to learn everything and control? I
1: will leave that to you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I will say that. I think that would be a very good way. So if people were to do this, because even in an hour, I know we barely scratched the surface on this, but that's maybe for good reason. Sometimes these things are... Better absorbed in book form, I think. When there's this much, so how can people connect with you or get your book? Sure, I,
1: I'm not super active on social media right now, but people, you know, can feel free to email me for starters if they want. Uh, they can find me at University of Sioux Falls. I've got that's the best way to get a hold of me. Probably is through my work email. Okay, so just looking up the site there. The publisher, of course, is another way to get a hold of me, and it's published through University Press, and so. You know, they pass things on to me as well.
0: Yeah, which they're wonderful. I love them a whole lot over there on that team. So thank you, Brian, for doing this. I really hope it has challenged people to look at this a little bit differently and look at our own role and how we try to control and how much complexity there really is. Thank you for writing it. And thank you for making time to do this with us today.
1: Oh, it's been a real pleasure.
0: Thank you so much to Dr. Greg for coming on today. I know I sound like a broken record, but please head to the show notes. I've linked his book there. Please get it. I am saying that over and over because I have read it and I really believe in the power of this resource to equip us to have a better overall view of suffering. So check that out. I also linked his email if you'd like to connect with him and thank him for being on the show. Thank you to you. I am praying that you go forward from this. Maybe you can turn this off for a second and get quiet before the Lord. Ask him where you've been trying to control your suffering. Ask him what he wants you to do with what you learned in this episode today. We'll see you again here next week.